Hello, I'm Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician by background and I lead adoption and training here at Allidade. Welcome to the ACO Show, a podcast where we explore the new world of value-based healthcare and specifically how one company is trying to transform the healthcare system from a world where medical providers benefit financially only from the volume of work that they do to a system where they are paid for keeping patients healthy. This is Josh Israel. I'm also a physician and a medical director here at Allidade. And today we'll be talking to Edwin Miller, who is the Chief Technology Officer at Allidade. And it brings up a lot of issues around the details of transformation of healthcare. It's one thing to talk about the idea of change, but then the practicalities of it involve a lot of issues around technology. And Edwin has a lot of background and a lot of really interesting thoughts on that. And this podcast will not only be interesting if you're looking to learn more about value-based care and how you achieve it, but also if you're interested in startups, technology, and health IT. Edwin has a lot of experience in all those worlds. are here with Edwin Miller, the Chief Technology Officer and co-founder of Allidate. Edwin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start with, would you share your origin story here at Allidate? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll try to make it brief. Um, I uh, actually started out as a software developer many years ago, more years than I probably want to admit, um, starting out just doing software for various companies. And in the early 90s, I wound up in healthcare. Um, building uh, technology products as a developer um, that, you know, to this day, I've probably built or launched like 30-something products in healthcare IT, mm -hmm. primarily in the ambulatory physician space, uh, starting with billing and practice management, and then moving early into EHRs in the 90s. So I was one of the earliest, you know, I had one of the earliest cloud-based EHRs uh, called DigiChart back in the day, um, and then later went to Athena Health and some other uh, EHR vendors. And so I've just been, um, I guess what I found that was really my purpose in this was when I got to work with docs and helping them solve the problems that they had when they were trying to see patients and trying to leverage technology to, to make that better. Uh, I don't know that we've actually done that, but, we, um, but there was certainly a lot of intention to uh, back, back in the day. Um, as far as Allidade, uh, I was super excited at the opportunity to, to help start Allidate. I met Farzad uh, back when uh, he was at ONC. He offered me a job there, but I turned him down because I'm not sure I wanted to work for the federal government. But I, I love Farzad and, and, and his entrepreneurial spirit. And when he uh, left the government and he called me and asked if I wanted to join this startup called Allidate, and he, he said like three things that, that excited me right away. Primary care docs, trying to move to value-based care, and leveraging technology in new ways. And so it was kind of at the intersection of, of healthcare reform, payment reform, where health IT had been kind of what I call the post-EHR world, and, and uh, an opportunity to really build a new company with a new culture that uh, where we weren't encumbered by other people's <laughs> dreams and limits. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so it just, it was super exciting to me, like a nanosecond to make that decision. Mm -hmm. I didn't even call my wife or anything. I was just like, I'm doing it, I'm That's in. Huge. So, um, so yeah, that was sort of the origin story. That was uh, June of 2014, actually a few months before that, but um, we launched the company officially uh, in June. Okay. Where, and where were you then when Farzad? I was at a, a cloud-based vendor called CareCloud based in Miami. Uh, they had a really nice, uh, EHR design, uh, revenue cycle management product, uh, they're still still kicking and doing well by as far as I understand. And I'll just say in case anybody's not listening to all of our podcasts, but just one or two, that Farzad is Farzad Mustashari, the CEO of, of our company, Allidate. And Edwin, can you talk a little bit about the earliest developments of the tech product here? Yeah, it really was truly a, a greenfield experience. We. Um, so we, we went and met, we, the first job we had, so so Allidate started in mid-June 2014, where we got funding, and then we had to apply to create two ACOs 
by July 31st, so 45 days later. So we had to very quickly go recruit docs. You can imagine how much software we had at that time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so basically we went out to our earliest docs and we used data to identify them. So there's a lot of public use data that we could put together and identify docs who might be good at value-based care based on, you know, are they PCMH? Are they high quality docs? Are they, uh, do they, have they tested for meaningful use? So they're using an EHR mm -hmm. and they kind of know how to do that. And so we, we used data to identify that. And sure enough, when we went and talked to those docs, they were, they were like, wow, we've been waiting for someone like you to come along and help us because we want to stay independent and we want to, you know, we don't want to sell to the local hospital because this is 2014. And if you hadn't sold already, you probably aren't going to or you don't want to. But we really need a path to get to value-based care because we see where it's going. And that's actually how we want to practice medicine. But we really don't, you know, we need the tools to help us do that. And so a lot of that was, was listening and then building something very quickly. Um, I think at the beginning we thought we would buy a bunch of stuff because if you go to HIMSS or a trade show, there's like a thousand population health tools, right? And so I thought, even I thought, even been in this business a long time, I thought, well, we'll just parade the sales guys through here and we'll have this, they'll buy us dinner, it'll be great, and it'll be super easy and we'll pick the best one and we'll just buy it. And it turned out it wasn't that easy. And um, I can get into that a little bit more, but... Um, Basically, we just started as we listened to the docs more, which is the key. We really understood a lot of, and, and a lot of what we needed them to do in those early days was recruit patients for things like wellness visits or or managing risk or whatever. And so a lot of it was analytics, which meant we need to get data right away. So the first step was I actually sat at their computer and pulled claims, you know, pre-adjudicated claims off their system and pulled them in. So the very first thing that we built was patient outreach, which is. You know, because usually in population health, whatever the question is, the answer is call your patient and mm -hmm. talk to them. So we needed a way, a tool that that identified which patients they needed to call and gave more basically a simple work list. Mm -hmm. We actually stole the idea from uh, there was an Obama campaign uh, tool that was a crowdsource calling tool where you could just log in and make campaign calls for Obama. Mm -hmm. We just stole that idea and and built the same design for docs to call patients and, and it would basically just prioritize the highest priority patient for you to call and you would call them once you went to that one it would go to the next patient and so on. And uh, so that that was like the first thing we built in the first like few months. What did you think you'd be building if it wasn't a population health tool? I thought we'd be well I thought we would it was a bunch of you know dashboards and analytics and and um, I would say probably more intelligence than that really represented because yeah. those those the analytics behind that were relatively straightforward. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say simple uh, and clean. You know, so in in a, in a startup, you're it's like you know, let's get some data. It's not going to be perfect. We're not going to we're not going to clean it as much as you would like we would today. In those days, it was all very kind of directional. And mm -hmm. and what do we need to give these docs so that they can actually start calling patients? We started the company, like I said, in, in mid June, and and so we had to we only had a little bit of time to file our application for CMS. So we had to kind of get con doctors contracted, and we had to get data right away so that they could start. Um, the biggest thing to do before the actual performance year started in January one was starting to get a sense of risk scoring and risk adjustment for patients. And so, so we used analytics and we built the calling app to do that and recruiting patients in for a wellness visit, which would also help with attribution um, and making sure that they're doing the right things from a population point of view. And it's a really, this is where the doctors had to start learning how to get out of the fee for service mindset and start thinking more longitudinally about their patients. And and so we were, I just want to emphasize, we're all learning this together. It's not like we came in and knew everything. We knew some things and our docs obviously know their patients and they know what they're doing. And so, but we all were in this together trying to learn and, and explore this together. And that was part of that early development process, I would say. So it sounds like you had this initial vision that you were gonna, uh, purchase off-the-shelf items, bring the data together in one platform, that sort of shifted as you were starting out, but you still had a core set of assumptions even coming out of that. So talk us through what your assumptions were when you started building what was that first kernel Allidade product um, to even today, and what was consistent with that and what has diverged from that? Yeah, I think uh a lot of things have stayed very consistent. Allidate, I've been in a lot of companies. Allidate has probably had the most straight line from the original vision of what the company is to where we are today four plus years later, where things are, are scaling and panning out well. I, and, and that's not an easy thing to do. A lot, a lot of companies pivot in one way or another. 
some things didn't pan out. Um, I think the um, the level of effort that was required for our practices to take on this work, we probably underestimated. Mm-hmm. I think that we uh, also thought that on the tech side, we thought that the EHR data would be a lot easier to, to get than it turned out to be. And and um, we thought, and we all come out of EHR backgrounds, certainly far as I've regulated the industry, and we thought there were things like data portability part of meaningful use. And we thought that that would uh, mean that we could push a button and get all the EHR data out of our systems, out of our practices systems, and bring that into a data warehouse. It turns out they could not push a button and get all their data out. They could, uh, in some cases, push one button per patient and do that 50,000 times, or they could, or it just wasn't available at all. And we found out that that was uh, really poorly implemented, and and so we ended up having to pay a lot of money to get that data from our from EHRs. And uh, over at the beginning, that took a lot of time and money. Now we've scaled that and figured it out, but this still requires us doing a point-to-point interface pretty much with every. Uh, new practice that we bring on. If it's a cloud-based system, then it's easier, but we still have to, to go through a process for each one. That's yeah, certainly for our, our providers, one of the frustrating things that they'll talk about is they'll say, you didn't get this data from me, and you say it's because I didn't put it into a structured field. You know, what do you mean by that? I put it into the computer, that's not a structured field. So, yeah, very much what you're saying. Every EHR, it's not just even different by vendor, every implementation of every EHR is different. Where they put, you know, falls risk, might be in a template. It might be somewhere else. It, you know the, the um, you know so so it may not tie to the quality scoring that we use, and mm-hmm. so then they don't they entered it, but they don't get credit for it. That's very frustrating. Yeah. So we have an EHR team, which I think there's been a podcast with, as well to do you know who helps them through that. Um, on the tech side, on the data side, we're also pulling all of that data that we can get and mapping it to something consistent and all that. We do all that on the back end. But we've had to shield, we've done our best to shield our practices from what I'll call kind of predatory relationships with their vendors as far as getting data. And so we go out and we, we negotiate that and we get the data and we do that. Today we have about 70 EHR vendors and you know in our sort of 350 plus practices that are, that are out there. And it's Sal, you've mentioned data a few times and anybody who works here at Allied knows that's central to the process, but also, I would say in the broader health tech, health IT world, you know, they have a whole event here in Washington called Data Palooza. That's all they talk about. Um, what about the what data elements specifically do we bring together here at Allidade for our docs? Yeah, this hasn't changed since the beginning. Um, one of the things that was super valuable uh, turned out to, it turned out to stay very valuable was uh, the concept of pre-adjudicated claims. So these are claims that the doc. Had, maybe they just sent this is what they would send to their clearinghouse we're not remember we're not a revenue cycle company we, we're not focused on on claims reimbursement so we just need to know what they build and from that because guess what that's how the payer looks at them and all these contracts that we're doing for risk contracts are typically even CMS or payer based contracts and they don't look at CCDA data they look at claims so they're going to look at the diagnosis codes and the procedures that were done to really analyze what what's going on with the patients, and and so we need to do the same thing because we need to look at that that population the same way the payers looking at them. So the pre GA claims are great because they're real time. We don't have to wait for them to come back ninety days later from being processed. So so we get those. They're also very well structured and very consistent because for a, a couple of decades now, people have practices have been using the, that format to get paid, so they have to be right. Whereas with CCDA. They're very. It's much more squishy. The data is much more inconsistent, and and so, but it's still useful. So so we get claims to know sort of what's going on with the patient, diagnosis wise, uh, who's been seen, when they were seen, all that kind of stuff. We use the cl- clinical data for everything else. Usually, vitals is probably the most important information. So how's their BP? Um, what's their BMI? That kind of thing, and then lab results and things like that. So and also what medications are they on? So we use all that data to kind of you know, to correlate the data with each other, even to identify gaps. Uh, could be care gaps, it could be coding gaps, where uh, you haven't coded obesity, but the BMI, you know, they have a high BMI, but there's nothing, that, you know, they have diabetes not otherwise specified. So these kinds of things, you know, we, we that comes through in our data. Um, we also connect to 15 plus HIEs to get ADT information, so that's real time. ADT stands for Admission Discharge Transfer, which is uh, basically we wanna know when our patients went to the hospital or when they got discharged from the hospital, when they went to the ED. And so that data is extremely useful for managing transitions of care, which we have shown uh, great clinical outcomes with. 
Um, and so then we also, of course, get paid claims from payers 90 days later, and that helps us understand cost and, and utilization and, and that kind of thing to manage. So all of this data gets mashed up and put together into something useful, um, which is a most about a third of my team is devoted to that work. What we're talking about is really the nuts and bolts of how to translate value-based care into uh, into the reality, you know, so patients get better care and so that the doctors will be comfortable practicing in this new model. What do you describe as value-based care? You know, what, what does that mean to you? <laughs> so I'm a non-medical school guy, um, so I have a pretty simplistic view, but it's basically, um, it's what you would do as a physician when you're accountable for the overall patient as opposed to billing a service or an episode of care. Um, to me, so that's my simple-minded way of looking at it. You're responsible for for what's going on with the patient that you're not seeing today, mm-hmm. and uh, and and really, it's unlearning the fee-for-service myopia. You know, of, of uh, they're here today for this thing. I'm going to do that thing, and I'm going to bill for it, mm-hmm. and I do that 40 times a day. Um, and so, so a lot of population health is is about what's going on with patients that that you're not seeing where bad things could be happening. They could be going to the ER, they could, specialists could be, you know, maybe overutilizing uh, or, or doing inefficient things with them. And that's not good for the patient and it's also a high cost. And so being able to surveil that across the whole community and, and then have the primary care doc act as a quarterback on that is, um, is a key part of what the data uh, brings. Well, that's nice. I mean, I know as a, as a patient, you know, when I would see my own doctor, I'd rather they'd be thinking about how I'm doing at all times, not just how to build that next, you know, office visit. We we have some pretty breathtaking stories around doctors calling patients from, you know, I heard you were in the ER and are you okay? Mm-hmm. And the patient saying, I had no idea you knew that and almost in tears saying, Thank you for calling me, you know, and then mm-hmm. checking in on me. So we know that that's a the, the primary care and patient relationship is so trusted and so strong and we're just trying to make it stronger. So having uh, grown up in a house with a, a, a father who was a doctor and grandparents who were doctors across the street uh, who did this kind of work all the time, um, but they did it without, uh, they didn't, wouldn't have called it value-based care and they wouldn't have thought about it this way, but it was essentially the same thing because it was a smaller community. Um, my dad's office was right next to a community hospital and so he would get sort of a phone call, let's say, a phone ADT <laughs> alert when one of his patients was in. Um, and they seem to do that just fine without technology. So how, in our current setting, how does technology play into that in general, given that you're a tech guy at a tech company? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, one anecdote from my, you know, from one of my EHR days, um, you know, I used to, th- I used to work a lot with OBGYN physicians and they had a standard of care around doing a, like a group B strep at 38 weeks of pregnancy. So, and they would say to me, you don't need to tell me that. You don't need, I don't need the EHR to tell me that. I know what the standard of care is. The problem is I don't do it every time. And it was more like they needed Six Sigma or Henry Ford mm-hmm. than more than they needed like super scientific genzyme kind of mm-hmm. insights. And, and so, and so technology doesn't, uh, my rule about technology doesn't really unless it's a really compelling technology like the automobile or maybe the internet, it doesn't change goals, it changes tasks. So so to get repeatable, scalable change, you need technology. But it's not gonna necessarily make you do the right thing. It just can make you do it more consistently. And so at Allidade, if we were Allidade without tech at all, we would just be like a big consulting company. We would just go in and tell docs, here's the standard of care, here's what you should do, here's some wonky stuff about health policy. And, uh, but but the, where the rubber meets the road is doing it every day on every patient, you know, across every person in the practice. And to do it that way, you have to have tech. And, and so, and that, that is the, the big difference. And so I think, and you'll hear Matt Kendall say this, you know, we can't, you know, we can't scale anything we do without, you know, applying tech to it. I've had people ask me, is Allidate a tech company or a healthcare company? And so, number one, what are we? And number two, does it matter? Yeah, I don't know if it matters a whole lot. Um, almost in this modern day, almost every company is some form of a tech company. But that being said, um, I think, I, I personally think we're a transformation company. We're, we're transforming to a new model in healthcare. And so, you know, for the example of, you know, docs are already doing population health in their head, that's probably true, 
but they don't really get paid for it and there's not been any incentive. And so now there's a reimbursement model that allows them to capture some of the value of doing that, which is what they already want to do. And we need to bring that to them. And in order to do that, they have to have data, they have to show that they're doing these things and all these things, all this has to happen. Um, anyway, so that, that brings a lot of tech and analytics into play. And, and so we, we enable this transformation and we, but we start with the outcomes, you know, which is, you know, you need to do wellness business, you need to do end of life planning, you need to do, um, you know, transitions of care, you need to manage high risk patients. All of these things are, you know, not so much techie, but, but they all have applications of tech to them. And so we don't lead with that. And I'm kind of proud of that actually, as, even as a tech guy, I, I want it to be about, you know, doing the right thing for patients and for our practices and helping them be successful. And then, you know, yeah, so there's a tech tool that helps with that. Great, let's find it and let's, let's build it and let's do that. Um, we've ended up building, you know, in the build versus buy question, we've ended up buying things that are on the back end that our providers don't see, and we build more things that they do see because we want to control that experience more and have it be just the right thing for them. And so, um, you know, in terms of what, you know, are we a tech company? Look, tech companies don't usually bring anything to docs. I've been in that space a long time. and. And uh, I, I was always sort of sad to see how unhappy doctors were. And, and I always felt like when I was building EHRs or other systems, I really didn't have anything to offer them that was gonna help them dig out <laughs> from the sadness I saw mm-hmm. uh, of the system continually, the walls closing in, reimbursement decreasing, all the pressures that they feel. And now with Allidate, we actually have something to offer that can, and I like this as a tech guy, I can go in there and say, well, yeah, we have these tech tools and that's great. But <clears throat> but we can help you actually make more money and, and be more stable economically, do the right things for your patients, um, understand how to manage this new world that's coming and, uh, and, and be on the right side of history with all this stuff. So I think that's, to me, that, that's exactly where I wanna be, not offering some kind of tech tool. And you're, you know, we've talked a lot about your background in not just healthcare software, but particularly in the EHR space. And I'm curious why, well, two parts. Um, have you ever pushed for us to develop our own EHR or uh, buy an EHR um, like Flatiron did, where they purchased an EHR to basically run with their software? Um, granted, they have a more uh, narrow mandate. Uh, Flatiron focuses on uh, community cancer care. And, um, and they do a lot of the similar analytics type work that we do, but they ended up purchasing an EHR. So A, um, have you ever thought we should build or buy an EHR? Um, and I know that we have our own application. Um, have you ever thought of beginning to migrate that to an EHR type function? So I've, I've worked on five EHRs, uh, three of them from the ground up. Um, and so my instincts are to build EHRs, mm-hmm. and I and then I was I was told uh, when I was hired that I couldn't do that. Um, but uh, it's a straight line. Yeah, it was one of those. Uh, but I'll be honest. So like, given again, we have all these folks who have EHR backgrounds, and we have not had that kind of EHR strategy here. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. One is you know building the first the first five. Well, eighty percent of an EHR is probably similar to what every EHR is, and that's that's a, a lot of effort that we would have investment we would have to make. Um, um, and so, I don't, I don't honestly, I don't think the a great EH, the great population health EHR, it's still out there. Yeah. Um, it, and and I would love to build it, and we would be a great place to do it because we're aligned with our docs, and we're not mm-hmm. trying to sell something. And because the minute you're selling software, then you're building features based on RFPs and things like that, and it's not a good way to really be aligned with your customer. Mm-hmm. So we are just so outcomes focused; it would be great, and it might happen out of natural evolution here, but it's not. We're not pushing it. The other problem is. Um, we don't want to push our docs necess- unnecessarily to change their system because it's just disruptive for them and expensive and, and it would get in the way of them doing their ACO work and their account, you know, dro- making this transition. The last thing they want to do is wait nine months and go through a whole churn around EHR uh, implementation. Um, we get asked a lot, and I'm sorry to say this, I, we, we get asked a lot how, you know, what EHR should I buy? And we don't really have a great answer. Um, we, we, we're not seeing much difference, uh, if any, from one HR to the other in terms of results in value-based care. And, and I, I did, that's probably counterintuitive. 
Um, a lot of the stuff that we do in our app, like calling patients or work listing, are things that could be done in the EHR um, if the EHR, if there was ever one that was more population health focused. But a lot, remember, a lot of EHRs came out of billing systems, and so they're very rooted in fee for service thinking mm-hmm. and episodic, encounter based EM code documentation. Mm-hmm. And um, not that you know that's necessary, but not sufficient to do population health. And so we could we could get there. Um, so, uh, but we're pretty busy right now with all the other stuff that we're doing sure. that uh, where we don't need to go build another soap node and another order entry system and, and all those things. Um, but again, that day may come. Do you think that's just a, a market type question here? Um, is that the white space in the EHR market population? Yeah, there's a huge opportunity. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, I don't know. The, that's a whole other podcast. Like what's going on with the EHR industry? There's been, you know, there's, it, you know, after post meaningful use and all the capital that went in during, you know, like say five years ago. Um, <clears throat> then there's been exits and consolidation in that market, and so there are some early stage companies that are innovating in that space still, but they're much less than they were. So it's um, and and so and it's also hard for them to figure out how to monetize this. I think, yeah. and it's, but the business model's out there. I don't know, maybe that's the next thing we do. So how has your own EHR background then played into the thinking about the Allidate app? And maybe giving a, a high-level overview of the app for folks who are not uh, uh, as familiar with what we offer. Yeah, the app sort of sits alongside the EHR, um, and you know that, that has pitfalls. The uh, like I said, there's there's sort of an outreach portion of it, which is workless, and there's several workless. Um, you know, that's usually not done by the physician. Obviously, it's done by some staff. And and the um, you know the goal there is to call patients. And and we the the key thing about the app for us is also it's a data source. So we know when people are calling patients, and we know why they're not calling patients. And we know and we can use that to feedback into our adoption team and, and into the uh, provider networks team, kind of what's going on. The um, we also have a care management tool, which is uh, for coordinating care, uh, sort of in a uniquely allocated way. Um, there's, uh, the, like I said, the transition to care tool, so managing, um, you know, knowing who has been to the ER or, or discharged, and, uh, and then there's sort of a risk management piece, which is uh, what we call sort of suggestions, coding suggestions around, uh, a, there's a concept called the daily huddle, which is like a daily stand-up, or like we ask that you look at this list every day, this is the patients that are coming in today, and here's the coding opportunities. So now's the time to, if you're going to file a claim on them today, here's, this is the time to uh, correct or uh, you know, make sure all the diagnoses are correct for risk adjustment purposes. That's probably one of the biggest things that practices have to do early on in this that is a little counterintuitive. Have there been any barriers to the practices using it more, to, to the uptake? Yeah, there's, you know, because it's not the EHR and it's not their central tool that they use all day every day, it's a little bit of an extra step. Um, but but so is most of what they're doing. They're having to think about this differently outside of the fee-for-service model. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there's there's barriers to it. Um, uh, you know, I think because we're all learning this together, and really, one of the good things about building our own tools, we can adjust to it as we learn. And if we need to change this, uh, we can do that um, based on feedback or based on what we're not seeing. We do surveil everybody. You know, the utilization of the app and what are they doing in it and and trying to use that to improve it. And that, that gives us sort of, you know, some data that then we can go ask more subjective questions about what to do better. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we do hear from our providers that they don't always use it as much as we would like them to, but when they do use it, we get good feedback about it. And, you know, we don't hear that about EHR. It's like, why do they hate their EHR so much? In general. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there's probably a million reasons. It, it tends to, so I, I come from old school EHRs when it, before meaningful use, when EHRs had to stand, had an ROI on their own. And I used to, you know, one of the first EHRs I worked on, we used to say, and we measured this, if you if you use the EHR, you could see an additional patient per day, which in the fee-for-service world is additional revenue. Mm-hmm. And and um, it actually saved time. It was faster to chart by exception in the EHR than it was to even dictate the note, mm-hmm. to even say the words. Um, the, over time, that became that it, the ROI has become less less of a, the compelling feature. And it's a little tragic because, you know, back then I used to see, you know, we used to go to trade shows and demo our software and doctors would come up and they would just be so excited and you could see the, they could see the potential of it and they knew this is where the world was going and they could see how it would help them practice better and, and be more efficient than this paper chart system. 
And then, and then, like five years later, they would come dragging up to our booth if they came at all, and they would just be like, "Oh, I just hate this stuff," you know. And and so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's I think it's become a lot of checkbox uh, orientation. There's been not enough focus on user experience and design, uh, which has been one of my pet projects. And uh, and so there's just not enough not enough empathy from the developers on the physician experience. I hate to, it sounds simple. Um, and everybody talks about it, but no one's really solving it. Um, so yeah. Do you think that's the double-edged sword of uh, the regulatory environment? And you know, if this were, if we were in a purely open market like uh, Uber or Google, um, you would have a the market would decide what was a good user experience. Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I lived through that time, right. uh, and it definitely felt more innovative and more greenfield. And you could you could. Uh, have more lateral thinking mm-hmm. about solving problems, but uh, because now everybody's roadmap has to follow what's the what's the me fuse cry, you know. But there was also there were products that were missing a lot of that stuff, and so I remember a comment by uh, way before Farzad and all that, um, where you know the they were, they wanted to create incentives for people to use EHRs because the doctors were clamoring for some reimbursement or some mm-hmm. way to get value from this. And the government was like, look, you can't, if we do that just blindly, then you'll just have a fax machine and call it an EHR. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, which people would have done. And Not in the open market say. world, right, it would have been like, you know, here's a checkbox and here, give me some money. And, and so I think, you know, they had to put some structure in place to define what is an EHR and, you know, do you need a problem list? Do you need, a, you know, order entry? Do you need, what, what is it, do you need to do med reconciliation, all those things? And so that that's all. I mean, it's all it's all useful. It should be a floor, and then there should still be a lot of innovation space on top of that. Um, it just I think a lot of companies have just focused on doing the bare minimum and uh, and getting more deals, which is kind of in their their product cycle is is, is not ideal. It's tricky because you know it's not a good place we're in right now with the relationship between EHRs and regulations and the providers. And it would be nice to think well we're just in an in between phase where better uses will be figured out. But then there's such that sort of capture, uh, the inertia of once you have an EHR, that even if a better one comes along, it's, it's so much, it's so challenging and disruptive to switch, yeah. It is, we did a survey, uh, it's, it's been a couple of years now, but we did a survey of our docs, a, a net, pro, net promoter survey of their EHR. And if you know net promoter, it can be a score ranging, ranging from minus 100 to positive 100, where minus 100 means I really don't like this product. And, uh, you know, so industries like airlines or cable television, they tend to be like in the low, like negative 50s or something like that. Our EHR score was probably, I think, in the negative 38 range or something Mm -hmm. like that. And then the next question was, do you plan to change your EHR in the next year? No. Mm -hmm. Like overwhelmingly, no. So I hate this, but I'm not going to change it. So that's not a good place to be. Yeah, I think we're in a transitional phase. I think there's... uh, there's, I think, change, as maybe as the shift of population health happens in, in value-based care, that might drive a new paradigm in EHRs, and, and that could be good. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting challenge. So taking a step back a bit to your, uh, that first product vision here at Allidade, um, I've heard tech founders talk about how um, somebody even uh, about the balance and the that goes into that first version of the product. I even heard one founder on another podcast say that every tech founder hates the first product as soon as it's shipped because of those trade offs that they have to make. Uh, have you have you experienced that? Did you experience it here and or in previous companies that you're at? Yeah, there's um, you know, in, in startup world, there's a concept of uh, you know minimum viable product or MVP um, I think the jury's still out a little bit on that but but um, you tend to have a greedy approach early on especially in a space so in the early days of the EHRs in the 90s when doctors were used to doing paper charts and they were having to think about this electronically you really didn't you couldn't just sit back and create a holistic vision of the whole thing and we can't do this do that today with our with our um, you know with what we're doing with our docs so you have to take a greedy approach you have to just say what's one thing that you need right now that would help a work list, great. Here's a work list, and then you look back, and then you, and then the next thing they ask for, could I have another work list? And then pretty soon you got five work lists, and you're like, you know what? We needed a work list platform. <laughs> and <laughs> then you go back, yeah. And so you have like this, I, we call it tech debt. That, that's a there's a lot of um, words for that, but basically, in the early days of a company, you typically 
you know, you can't build everything in day one or you'll never finish. And, you'll, and usually if you're, if you're running on investment capital, you're, you're going to run out of time if you do that. So what can, so it's always a balancing act. And so you have, you know, so there's sort of prudent tech debt where you say, we're going to intentionally do this later. And so we may not need to model every complex practice situation out there if, if initially we have you know a more simple model and so we'll just build we'll build what we need right now with an eye towards the future and, and knowing that we do that and so there's sort of there's sort of prudent tech debt where you're like we know we're gonna do this and then there's sort of reckless tech debt where you're like oh i didn't know that was a thing i didn't know that you had to do that and and then you're like oh i gotta go back and revamp it and and that kind of thing but but you know the best way to mitigate that is just to ship early and often and and so taking a greedy approach helps you with that so if you get something out that has value and 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 of course assumed in that is you're spending a lot of time with your docs or with your with your customer and whoever's doing it so if you sit back at in a conference room and try to figure out what people want it's not going to work you were here at the very beginning when there really wasn't a product so when you were out there talking to practices did you feel like you had to be pitching vaporware or were they okay just hearing about the vision and where you where you hope to take things it was a um, <clears throat> had to be a lot on our, on the, our own personal credibility. <laughs> um, no, I, I was never going to pitch vaporware. I actually remember distinctly one of our early pitch calls, and this may be why they didn't invite me to many later. But it was a very large practice, um, and we were pitching Alliday to them. And, and Farzad uh, was was in the room with me, and he actually his phone rang, and he got up and left, and he left me in there with the doc, this like the the head doctor of this practice, which was probably a huge mistake. And the guy, we got to talking, and I'm like, look, we have nothing. Like we look, we our company is literally you know two weeks old, and so. So I'm not going to sit here and show you a bunch of, and try to BS you about a bunch of stuff that we don't have. What we, what I can tell you is that here's what we're going to build. And in order to do that right, we need we need partners. And not everyone wants to do that. Not everyone wants to be in an early stage environment like that. But it worked really well. Like they they were like absolutely we want to be part of that because we know that this is going to be hard. And we also have to you know we want to we're going to learn it as well and we want a partner to help us think through that who can bring the resources and technology uh, expertise to to make that happen so you know honesty is the best policy there um and so a lot of those early stage relationships were we need to work together to learn how to do this and so you're gonna we're gonna ask you to do things and then and then you're gonna say huh well how do i risk adjust a patient how do i you know what are these risk opportunities how do i think about this and now how do i do it on every patient and how do I think differently about this diagnosis process? Because in the old days, I got paid the same, whether it was diabetes not otherwise specified or right. diabetes with complications with blah, blah, blah. And so um, I never had a reason to care about that. Now I do. So, huh. So now I got to think about that. And they were like, well, how can we help you? So what's in your EHR? Maybe we need, could create some order sets. Maybe we can create more stuff in your templates. And maybe we can give you some analytics to show you what you're doing and where the gaps are. And um, yeah, that would work. That's good. Let me see that, and then we do build something and bring it over, and 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 we would get there, and um, that that worked really well. And uh, if we weren't humble about it, and I will say, even all of us as co-founders were pretty humble in those days. Uh, you know, we had done some good things, but but this was all new to us and and to our docs, and so it was really just being honest and saying, here we're here, to, but we're here to stay, and we're here to work on this, and we're really committed to this, and and that 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 worked. Do you think you could have had those conversations if you didn't have such a strong EHR background? Hmm. And I, the reason I ask is, uh, I, as the leading the adoption team, get to be in practices with their first on-site touch point with the actual Alliday product, which yeah. is really cool. So you have the reality check. It, well, and interestingly, <laughs> the, you talked about our EHR team in, in, in a separate podcast. We talked to Rick Villaningham, who leads that EHR team. Um, but one of the things we discussed with Rick and that I've seen out in the field is because doctors can be frustrated and even the ones that are really engaged with their EHR, it takes up a lot of their time and energy and oxygen in the practice. So having somebody on site as we do when we go on site with an EHR coordinator as part of that initial team to get a practice set up, what we call a launch here at Allidade, it's like alchemy. <laughs> to bring a third party in that's not a vendor relationship and say, I'm going to help you make this thing that may be a pain point for you work better. 
Um, and I'm wondering, given that you knew the workings of EHRs broadly, whether that helped you say, let's sit down and look at your EHR now and what we can do with what you have to get us closer to an optimal state. I'm sorry, what was the question? The question was, do you think you could have done that without knowing EHRs like that? Uh, oh. Or just a straight software guy, not not an EHR background guy? Um, I think you would have a lot of ramp on... I mean, I was lucky in... Yeah, I don't know how you would do it without some experience. You would have to have some some experience working. This is a complicated domain. So in my my first jobs as as a developer, I worked in a computer in a consulting company, and so we did what I called software of the week. So I, and I'm from Nashville, so we had the Nashville Chamber of Commerce as a customer. And we had I had a grocery store as a customer, and I had we actually had music publishers in Nashville doing royalty accounting. So so I would go in there and I would learn groceries. Right. And 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 guess what? I could learn groceries. <laughs> I could I mean not everything about sure. it, but I could learn inventory management, I could learn margin and, and in the grocery business margins were super small and they had a lot of problems with, with uh, shrinkage of inventory, people walking out with their stuff and <laughs> and so and so that you know, just like all these different things and you can go in and learn that. Well guess what? When I went into healthcare the first time I could not learn it right. with my you know, background, right? And, and even docs who went to medical school couldn't learn how, they, did, they knew how they did things, but they didn't know how every other doc did. And if you ask a doc on even on two different days, you may get a different answer <laughs> on kind of what's, how, how this right. should work. So, so, so it really we, is we a- We like to call that the art of medicine. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> so, I like that. <laughs> So it's a it's a really complicated user experience user research problem of of trying to build a tool that can work across different zones and and so um, and 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 the domain is so complicated that trying to approach this as a like green and I've seen and, and look this is there's history is rife mm-hmm. with Silicon Valley companies who who've taken like a real surfacey look at healthcare and said oh. Why has this not been, you know, automated like every other industry? And then they're like, "We'll solve this." We're they're all stupid. We're not. And then like a month later or a year later, they're bankrupt or they're out, they exited. Yeah. So, so um, it's a it's a it's a deceptive problem. Um, healthcare is so broad. I look. I've had been in this business twenty something years, and I still have. There's parts of healthcare I I don't know anything about that yeah. I've never touched. Right. So, so it's um, and I think most people are like that. And and so. You have to have some experience doing this, and you. But most importantly, if you're going to work with docs, you got to have time in w- with them, and you've got to understand. You know, at least for me, like I, I enjoy that. If I ever have a bad day at work, I go to a practice, and it re inspires me yeah. because you know when I see what they're doing with their patients and the work that they're trying to do, it's it's just amazing. And it's like, so how can we help? You know. And, and they're not used to that, to your point. Like, they're used to seeing, they tend to see us as a vendor. Right. And that's like a dirty word around here. And that's a, one of the original sins of the software mm-hmm. business is just like the whole posture of like, here, license our product, pay us maintenance, don't ever call us because right. it's just a support hassle. That is not the right way to do this. And so, Alidate is, that's why we're not, tech, I mean, we're not, we are in this to win and to help you get to value based care. And we're, we make money when you make money. So, there's no, um, you know, we're not selling you anything. Um, and so, but they, but their natural posture or reflex is to see us as a vendor and, and, uh, and we don't want that. Knowing that, and that's a great segue into what I was trying to, where I wanted to go next was hiring tech talent. You know, this is, you hear all the time about how in demand, uh, technical talent is engineers, software developers. Um, and knowing that every grocery store needs somebody to do they probably have off the shelf revenue cycle yeah. for grocery stores now but <laughs> hey you know insert industry here or there they need software talent to develop something for them software of the week so how much for you personally in this space but also do you think for other folks who are technically inclined does the company itself matter is it you know how much how what is the difference um, when you're working for grocery stores or any other business versus a doctor's office or, or in the healthcare space. And I wonder just about location, you know, how it is hiring in Bethesda versus hiring in Palo Alto. Yeah, we, um, so I should probably say, first of all, we're hiring engineers. Uh, if there's any engineers that have made it this far in this podcast, first of all, uh, congratulations, and you're probably already qualified <laughs> to work here. Um, the, uh, uh, 
yeah, the we actually have uh, have a remote team, so we have people located uh, around the U.S. We chose, uh, given the the level of communication cloud technologies that are available today, we've chosen not to move people to Bethesda, uh, which is a pretty expensive place to live. Um, and so that's worked pretty well. Um, so we bring everybody together for kickoffs and for certain times where we all need to be together. But but by and large, we don't really care where you're located. Um, I think the the hiring question is a big one. Look, yeah, there's super low unemployment for in, for qualified engineers right now. They all are pretty much have a job and they probably are in a pretty good job. And so we have to uh, attract them away. And, you know, so some people are, not everybody's the same, but some people are not indifferent to the industry they're in and and the work that they're doing. And so those people work well here. And our problems are, are just as complicated, just as interesting from, uh, you know, data science and, uh, you know, analytics and predictive models around population health to, you know, workflow apps and user experience design and, and all that stuff. It's all very interesting um, work, but it's also very hard work and it can be, it can be difficult. Um, this is not, you know, a contact manager app or a, or an Instagram, you know, sort of, you know, we're going to put some pictures on the web and it takes like two developers a week to build it. It's not that simple. And, and I will say people who have left have been people who were pretty indifferent to what they were doing. Um, I have one of my favorite tweets that, uh, that I like to, you know, that was a good example of this, which was a sort of a sad uh, Google developer who said that his, uh, the algorithm I worked on at Google recommended Alex Jones videos more than 15 billion times to some of the most vulnerable people in the nation. So he like, you know, he was like, <laughs> he wrote this super complicated, sophisticated data science application mm -hmm. to really not do a great thing. And, and uh, you know, so look, we, our stuff isn't that complicated, but at least we sleep well at night. And because uh, we have reduced readmissions 15% predictably, we have, um, you know, manage high risk patients better. We are doing end of life planning. Our, I feel strongly, uh, more strongly than I ever have in any company that I would want to send someone from my family to an Allidate doc because I know the right things are going to happen. And, uh, or at least they're more likely to happen there than they would anywhere mm -hmm. else. And so it's, um, that is, that's, you know, so if you want to work at a place like that, you know, and, and, and I'm old enough to know, like, you, you, after a while, you've solved all the world's problems, and you might want to do something that actually means something, right. then, then that's, um, you know, th this is a place for you. And, and uh, Allied has one of the best cultures in terms of being mission-driven, but, you know, we obviously are also here to make money, and we're, we have a successful business, and it's going to continue to grow. So, you know, if you, if you are the best mind, you probably are not indifferent to what you're doing, and, and uh, it's not just a job. Are there particular tech skills that you look for when you're hiring or another set of skills that you think fit in well here? Um, I mean, a lot of software development is a, I like to say it's not a, it's not a, almost not even a tech thing. It's a people thing. You know, building software is, is about, in, in this space, is around the interactions with people. And because the domain is hard, you have to leverage docs and other people, and you have to be able to connect with them and understand where they're coming from. And and so, again, not all developers are interested in that, and that's fine. Um, but the skill sets we look, look, you know, being great developers is good. Um, we have a pretty thorough uh, engineering recruiting process and analytics. Uh, we have code tests and things that people do that are in analytics. They have to be able to answer a question using data and uh, and kind of talk about the trade-offs and, and issues with the data and stuff like that. So, you know, the hard skills need to be there, but um, on top of that here, it's it's having some, you know, patience with ambiguity. It's, dealing, it's, it's you know, this is a learning environment. We are all learning this together. It means we're going to get things wrong. And so, uh, we're gonna we're gonna say, oh, that wasn't right. We're gonna throw that away and do something else, you know. And that's hard when you just spent three months building that thing. And uh, but you should, when you can start to see that as like a good thing, like wow, we finally okay, we learned that that wasn't the right thing. Now we know that we that's not the right thing. So we're we're that much further along in understanding of this problem. So if you take a more holistic, big picture view, um, you can see that as as a good thing. So comfort with ambiguity. Uh, dealing with sort of the, the trade-offs in a startup and things like that are good. Again, not for everybody, but it does help um, to be able to to uh, work well with others and, and that kind of thing and, and have an interest in collaborating. Do you think that uh, com comfort with ambiguity, as you put it, and I think that's a great way to describe it, is 
more common in the technical space with recruiting. And the reason I ask is I've been, I've hired a couple roles and I really have to push on that because I'm on the service delivery side of the business. And a lot of the folks that know this come from big systems, they come from maybe extension of government work where ambiguity in gray areas and changing missions usually isn't the issue. I think uh, if you've been in a startup, you probably have a little more comfort with that, but um, no, I don't think there's, I don't know if it's particularly unique to like engineers or, mm-hmm. or tech folks. Um, I uh, I don't know. This is an area like I have a background in, actually my degree is in music. And so and, and in music, you do have a lot of uh, like unexpected things thrown at you. <laughs> and so that's a, um, so that, that may be uh, where you kind of roll with the punches yeah. a little bit. And uh, uh, whereas if you've, if you're expecting a lot of rigor and just give me the the playbook and right. I'll go do that very defined thing. We're definitely more agile, not to overuse that word, in terms of, uh, you know, it's inspecting and adapting very frequently and then reacting to that and, and going forward. And if you get more experience, you learn to value that um, as opposed to seeing it as a bad thing in, in sort of a non-judgmental way. Like, oh, we missed, we got the wrong answer on that. That's bad. Well, no, actually that was good because now every other company has the wrong answer and you now know that's, that is the wrong answer right. and now you're going to go do something else. You, it may still be wrong, but you're one further, one, you're one click ahead. You're ahead. Yeah. yeah and um, in your understanding of the whole thing. Right. Um, and so this is a, this is a long, a long view. Alidate as a company has been a long view place. You know, we, we talk to our practice about contract periods in terms of three years. And so you don't expect to join an ACO in the first year and necessarily hit a home run. It does happen. But, you know, your, you know, healthcare doesn't change on a dime and all of this stuff is a long view. So being doing these iterations, succeeding, failing, churning, learning, it takes time. And so someone who comes in is probably not going to figure all this out in the first, you know, six months. You might figure it out in five years. You might start to have some sense of like, oh, here's what we should do. I mean, I'm going, I've been going through this myself. I'm four and a half years into this population health world of Allidade after being in healthcare for 20 something years. And, and I learn new stuff every day and I have new realizations about what we should have done four years ago, you know, today and, and ongoing. So it's, it's um, you know, there's plenty of uh, interesting things to learn. So take the long view. Take the long view. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, you. at least here, I say this, you know, a little bit cagely, but you're, you're not going to get fired from making a mistake in the first week, right? You're going to, you probably will. Um, and the best companies I've worked at are the ones where that is seen as a, as a value and, and that we invest in our people and want them to be really good over time. Um, it's, it's great. You know, we have a lot of smart people here who came from, you know, prestigious places and they do great work, but they're going to do better work four years from now after focusing on this specific problem and applying all the background that they have to this. Well, this has been great, Edwin. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you.